Hello and welcome to Le Monde Diplomatique's podcast for August 2011. My name is George Miller, and each month I bring you an in-depth interview with one of our contributors. This month, my guest is John R. MacArthur, who's publisher of Harper's Magazine and the author of books including The Selling of Free Trade, NAFTA, Washington, and The Subversion of American Democracy. In the August edition of Le Monde Diplomatique, John MacArthur writes about the consequences of the North American Free Trade Agreement for ordinary American working men and women. To date, an estimated 2.5 million US employees have lost their jobs as a direct result of it. John's article follows the story of a spark plug which once featured in the famous TV debate, all the way back to where it was made in a small Midwestern town, Fostoria, Ohio, the better to understand the impact of NAFTA on American livelihoods. I began by asking John, tell me more about that spark plug. Well, I'm I'm interested in spark plugs uh, like any other uh, casual driver, but but I'm really interested in them because uh, they played such a key role in the NAFTA debate uh, in the uh, early 90s. And I was uh, writing a book about NAFTA in the late 90s when I happened across, uh, of course, the famous debate between Ross Perot and Vice President Al Gore, which really turned the tide in favor of of NAFTA in uh, the fall of 1993. And Gore, unfortunately, for people who thought NAFTA was a bad idea, and I'm one of them, won the debate handily. Uh, he's a professional politician, and he did, some, I think, some rather unscrupulous things and uh, beat Perot, who was a, a billionaire and an eccentric, uh, who was quite sure of himself, but didn't was out of his depth competing with a professional politician. In any event, after their debate, which wasn't a formal debate, but it was a confrontation on national television, there was a post-debate debate between two pro-NAFTA, two anti-NAFTA people. And the leader of the pro-NAFTA business coalition was one of the people on the show, and he had been advised by a PR man named Carter Eskew, who was Gore's personal sort of PR advisor, that he had to do something dramatic because uh, people were panicked uh, already in the early 90s about deindustrialization and jobs heading to Mexico, cheap labor locales all over the world, but especially to Mexico and to the Far East. And in order to do this, he had to do some showmanship and I'm a great student of public relations. In fact, if you read my first book, The Selling of Free Trade, you'll see it's jam-packed with details about advertising and public relations, how it's done, the mm. specifics of it. And this is the crudest, but one of the most successful PR things I've ever seen. Larry Bossidy, the chairman of Allied Signal, which owned the spark plug plant uh, I'm writing about in Fostoria, Ohio, got on uh, the show. And in the middle, just took it upon himself to hold up an actual spark plug and say, look, essentially, if we pass NAFTA, we'll hire more spark plug workers in Fostoria. And if we don't, it's the end of the world. And so this worked brilliantly in conjunction with the the Gore-Pro debate. And it's at that point that the tide began to turn. So because I'm this kind of reporter, I just never let go of these stories. And I kept following the spark plug plant in Fostoria to see if it really, it's called Autolite spark plugs, to see what would happen. Would, in fact, the owner of, spark, of, of Autolite, at that point, Allied Signal, increase hiring? And for a while, 
they maintained hiring, and uh, through the boom in the late in the um, sorry in the early part of the, the, the first century, uh, which was as we know largely built on paper and water, uh, things were okay. Another thing that Vasity had said was that the auto business would be helped by exports to Mexico, and people who understood what NAFTA was really about knew that that was nonsense, but it sounded good at the time. And anyway, finally, during the beginning of the debate between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama in 2008, the, I shouldn't say the debate, the great primary battle between them, NAFTA came up in the, in the Ohio primary and other Midwestern industrial states where they were fighting for votes. And um, so I went back and looked at what was happening at, at uh, Autolite. It turned out the company had already been merged uh, with Honeywell. Honeywell had taken over Allied Signal. Bossidy was gone. And uh, lo and behold, uh, the Autolite spark plug plant was down to about 270 workers. Most of them were going to get uh, laid off within a year or two because they built a maquiladora in um, uh, Mexicali, just south of the border with California, to build spark plugs. This is what NAFTA was all about. It was about facilitating cross-border moves to cheaper labor labor locales. It was an investment agreement. It was not a free trade agreement in the classic economic sense. And so anyway, I, I went back and, and uh, examined what was happening in Fostoria. It was very striking, I thought, that it wasn't a failing plant by any means. It was highly productive, but it was simply the case that the wage differentials were so huge that right. um, the, the giant sucking sound that Ross Perot um, famously referred to was, was, was all too apparent, wasn't it? Yes, the difference in wages is about something over $22 an hour with benefits included to the Ohio workers and about, I think, the equivalent of $1.83 uh, an hour for the Mexican workers. Exchange rates change. For a long time, it was about a dollar an hour. Besides which, the Mexican workers work a 48-hour week, and American workers still work a 40-hour week. And it was a fantastically productive plant. And this is the thing that really hurts when you interview the the Autolite workers is that they're quite proud of their efficiency and industrial capacity. The right wingers and the free traders have have characterized them and caricatured them as these lazy union sort of stiffs who don't want to get up in the morning and do any work and just want to get paid and feather bedded or whatever. And uh, in fact, they're very hardworking, honest folks who took advantage of a booming economy, you know, joined the the union because uh, the union paid higher wages than the non-union factory on the other side of town, and uh, were able to send their kids to college, uh, were able to have middle-class lives, were able to themselves go to go to school, to night school, and improve themselves. Uh, and all of a sudden, the thing is, is and, and in the meantime, doing very well for the company, making millions, immense numbers of spark plugs, in, in the most, I mean, I went into the factory, sneaked into the factory, and I saw how they worked and how they operated. It's just the most amazing testimony to American uh, industrial strength when you see how these things actually work. I'm, I'm sort of a student of it. And uh, they, uh, they just have it pulled out from under them because they're making too much money. And the company feels it's not making enough money. So there's a lot of contrast. And the, re- and the workers are quite sophisticated. They, they, you know, they look at the tax returns, and they see how much money the executives at Honeywell are making. In the case of uh, Dave Cody, the uh, CEO, 
more than $13 million in 2009, they feel robbed. And it, it also seemed to me that it was a, a story of broken promises and bad faith, because at one point, some of the workers in Fostoria have their arms twisted to training, into training the, the Mexican workers with the threat if they don't cooperate, then the plant will definitely close. And at another point, they're, they're told they're going to have to accept a 50% wage cut if they want to go on working. So it's not simply the story of, of you know, industrial evolution. There's, there's, there's quite a lot of um, really sharp practice going on. Right, and the the thing is, is that uh, again, conventional economists are always predicting that automation will eliminate jobs before anything else. Efficiency, automation, technological advances, and so on. But in this case, it's the crudest, as you say, arm twisting. Listen, you make too much money. We've got uh, you know 600 Mexicans down in Mexico. We're happy to do this for a fraction of what you're getting paid. But we'll think about, you know, we promise to try to keep jobs up here if you'll just play along. And they go very perversely or brilliantly pick on some Mexican-American workers. You know, these are second, third-generation Mexicans who don't speak very good Spanish. And they get them to go down to Mexicali to train the workers. One of them uh, kept a journal, a very literate guy named Larry Capetillo. And uh, they say, look, you want, you want to keep some jobs in Fostoria? Make the Mexicali plant a success. And uh, maybe your daughter will keep her job because Autolite, like a lot of Midwestern factories, has two and three generations of families working in the in the factory. And um, he says, okay, you know, we know we're going to be hated for this by some of our workers, but we've got to give it our best shot. Plus, they're, again, they're very can-do, hard-working people who want things to work. So, of course, they go down, they do their job, they, they speak Spanish to the Mexicans, and... Um, Again, uh, they're they're rewarded with an offer of a of a huge pay cut to eleven dollars an hour, which the union rejects. I'm not sure it's necessarily tactically the right thing to do, but it was considered too humiliating, and they decided they'd rather go for good severance than for uh, for a, a humiliating wage cut. The other thing which I picked out in your article, which I thought was very striking, was the fact you mentioned conventional economists a moment ago, was the, the extent to which the orthodoxy has really become neoliberalism, free trade. And when one of the, the workers at the plant goes to take a, some further education, she, she feels that she's almost sort of consigned to the scrap heap by some law of nature that's presented in the, in the, the economics textbook that she's um, reading. Right. She's, she's, a, she's again, she's another one of our college-educated uh, unionized factory workers. She's got a BA from uh, Bowling Green University. But, so she's smart, and she says, look, uh, I'm going to, not to lose my job, I'd better uh, uh, get some more training, because this is the mantra in the United States now. Look, uh, the problem is not the free trade deals or the, or the bias towards a finance economy over a, a manufacturing economy or the, the power of the finance and uh, actually also the, the, the legal uh, lobby, because the legal lobby benefits from these cross, cross-border deals as well. Just get retraining and you'll get a better job. So she goes and gets the uh, retraining uh, or starts getting the retraining at her local university. And the first thing she does is get put in an economics class and is confronted with an economics textbook in her introduction economics uh, class written by none, none other than Glenn Hubbard, the president, as the dean of the Columbia Business School, former chairman of uh, Bush, the father's Council of Economic Advisors, and a villain in the documentary, which won the Academy Award last year, uh, Inside Job, or this year. 
And he's just the most, uh, he's just a fountain of economic cliches and orthodoxy. Efficiency is all, free trade is, is magic, it's win-win in the end. Even if a lot of people lose their jobs in the United States, uh, they're going to benefit in the long run because prices are going to go down for imported goods. And don't worry about the, the, the Bangladeshis or the Chinese or the Mexicans who get their jobs. Uh, the alternative uh, to them working for a dollar or an hour or 50 cents an hour is often worse, like prostitution and child labor isn't so bad. And it's just extraordinary. So um, uh, this worker we're, we're talking about, she says, um, I just can't believe it. I mean, here I am actually doing what they told me to do. I'm trying to get retraining, and I'm also a victim of these free trade deals because even Hubbard doesn't deny that encouraging uh, uh, jobs to go to go out overseas to cheaper labor locales, uh, he doesn't pretend it isn't disruptive for some people. She says, look, I've had my life disrupted. This whole town is being disrupted. It's being uh, ruined. And and the first thing I do is have to read an economics textbook by Glenn Hubbard telling me that it's good for me. Let me let me ask you in conclusion. There's a, a shocking statistic in the piece that the two and a half million American workers have been adversely affected by the NAFTA agreement. And I wondered what you thought the future held for people in Fostoria and all the other towns like it. I mean, what prospect is there of finding other employment? Well, there's very little uh, prospect of them finding employment anywhere near as, as, as profitable or as well-paid as, uh, as uh, working in a unionized factory. or a, a, It doesn't actually have to be unionized to be well-paid because in the United States, like uh, other places, in towns where there's some unionized, some non-unionized factories, the non-union factory would pay close to the union factory wage in order to keep the union out. So the union uh, would, do the be- would benefit everybody yeah. in town. Now, there's nothing. You go around Fostoria, every factory of any note, there's maybe one, there's one, one factory still running uh, at, at a decent clip, which is owned by an individual, an eccentric individual who just won't give in. He won't move, to, he won't move it to Mexico. He's an old-fashioned economic nationalist. But it's a devastated place. And the political elite in the country, led by Barack Obama, who's no different from Bill Clinton and uh, George Bush, the George Bushes on this on this issue is a devotee of David Ricardo and conventional free trade uh, economic theory. Does nothing. They've done nothing. He promised Obama promised to do something about it in the Ohio primary in order to beat, try to beat Clinton, and then reversed himself as soon as he got in office. Said, "No, I'm not doing anything. Uh, we're not going to change NAFTA. There's other ways to help the economy." On top of that. Again, another humiliating detail. Dave Cody, the chairman of Honeywell, which is now selling um, uh, Autolite and some other companies to a, an, a, a leverage buyout firm called the Rank Group. Uh, Dave Cody was one of the first people Obama went to for sort of a public relations uh, show of government industry cooperation to restore employment in factories. Cody got up there right next to Obama and said, "Hey, I'm you know I'm I'm devoted to the cause and I'm going to do everything I can to help uh, save jobs." And here he is, laying people off, building maquiladoras, uh, and now even selling his uh, his a, a big chunk of his company to a leverage buyout firm, which is going to uh, lay off even more people. This is the finance economy in America. This is the prevailing orthodoxy, and. 
it's essential for readers to understand that it's not going to change until the two-party system uh, uh, changes, because the two parties have a lock on politics in this country, and they raise money for their campaigns, their political campaigns, from the very people who benefit from these so-called free trade agreements. Uh, you could be sure that Honeywell's political action committee will be contributing significantly to Barack Obama's campaign, re-election campaign in 2012, but they'll also donate to the Republicans and that the Wall Street will continue to finance a good part of Obama's campaign and, and the Republican rival's campaign. This is the system we're in right now. I was talking to John R. MacArthur. You can read his article, Goodbye to Fostoria, Ohio, in the August issue of Le Monde Diplomatique. Do also visit Le Monde Diplomatique's website at mondediplo.com. There, subscribers can read the current issue of the paper and access a complete archive as well as explore the Diplomatic Channels section, which offers articles, blogs, maps, images, and a podcast archive. I hope you'll join me again next month for another in-depth interview with one of our contributors. Until then, thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.